Well, I was raised in church and had exposure to the gospel as a high school student. It really wasn't until my senior year of high school because of the influence of a girl I started to date that I said, I'll really start following the Lord. And, uh, and, that, and you know, I think there are people actually in this church that can say that it was their significant other, uh, maybe it's their, your spouse now, that had a significant role in helping you find uh, a relationship with God through Christ. And that was certainly the case with me. The church we were attending at the time, though, had a slogan uh, that they had written across the head of the youth area, and it was, remember the lost. And, and that stuck out to me for whatever reason. And this church was heavily involved in reaching people. Now, they did it in some odd ways, but that was a huge commitment uh, of the church where I really decided it was time for me to follow Christ. And so early, early in my Christian experience, I, I believed that being involved in reaching others was important, but I just never saw how I was ever going to be a part of that. I don't know if you've ever felt that before, but you think, you know, you hear people tell stories about how they led somebody to Christ or how they talked to somebody about Jesus and then they prayed to ask Jesus into their life. And I remember thinking, that has never even come close to happening with me. The, at that time, the closest thing that had ever happened to me was... Uh, getting into an argument with somebody about whether or not God existed. You know what I mean? That was like the extent to which I had ever been involved in a process of helping somebody, and I'm not sure it was all that much help. I uh, went off to college when I was at West Virginia University and got involved with Campus Crusade for Christ, which is a parachurch organization on campuses around the country and the world. And, uh, of course, their philosophy is win, build, send, which means you have to win people to Christ first. And so sharing what was known then as the four spiritual laws, they've changed it now, uh, it was a huge part of their training process, and you were supposed to get opportunities to tell people about Jesus. And, and again, I would go to Campus Crusade meetings and hear students talk about how they led others to Christ, and I would kind of look and go, who, who does this? You know, how is this ever going to really happen? And, and so, I mean, I was a little bit more active in telling others about the Lord, but I'd certainly never come to a place where I would ever have said I led somebody to Christ or I, I prayed, like, with them, like, in front of them for them to become a Christian. Some guy asked me once, he goes, you know, well, have you ever asked God uh, to allow you to be a part of that process? And I said, no, it just seemed like a silly thing to ask God for. I mean, there are a lot of things I would pray and ask God for that I didn't think was, were as silly, like God provide a girlfriend or, you know, <laughs> God provide my tuition. But I had never really thought well, this is something I could ask God about. And sure enough, I decided, okay, well, this is something I seem to be told that I'm supposed to be a part of. And I would really like to help people find the Lord, so I prayed. And it wasn't a month later that a young woman in our dorm asked me about my faith, and I began to talk to her about it. And uh, we were sitting around, and she said, that sounds like something I'm really interested in. So, of course, I broke out my four spiritual laws and worked with her through laws one through four and asked her at the end, you know, does receiving Christ sound like something you want to do? And she said, sure. And I said, right now? You know, and she said, yes. And I said, okay. So on the floor of her dorm room, I prayed with her, and she came to Christ. Now, up to that point, I never imagined that I would ever really get to do something like that. It just seemed sort of foreign to me. But I tell you, once that bug caught me, um, I didn't think that there was anything else I really wanted to do. Now, you may say, oh, that's what every preacher says, and that's not really true. You'd be shocked how many pastors have very little experience in exposing anybody to the gospel, but they feel this tremendous sense to get up in front of a church and actually preach the gospel. For whatever reason, and it isn't just because I went into ministry, because I had a career shift. I was a disc jockey for years before I went into ministry, 
And so I didn't really think I was headed for the ministry. I think it is something that God wants everybody to be involved in, and yet there is something in all of us that says, not me, I'm not qualified enough, I'm not gifted enough, I'm not whatever enough. And so there's this tremendous sense that we're never going to get to do something and see the miraculous because of who we are. And today, we're going to look at the life of Ruth. And I'm going to have to summarize Ruth's life because it's four chapters in the Old Testament, and it's almost impossible to read all of that in a worship service without having you fall asleep. We even did two very long passages today, and that's just a fraction of the text. And so I will do my very level best to to give you the overarching narrative that is Ruth's life. But it's part of a a grander campaign for us this fall where we're looking at quote-unquote heroes of the faith. And these are people who we would exalt as, as those whose examples we should follow. And we look at their lives and we will say, okay, what is it that we can glean from them? What is it that we're supposed to learn from them? What is it that we're supposed to learn about God through their lives? And Ruth is certainly one of those people that there are some great things that we can learn about the Lord and about his plan for us and for our church if if, in fact, you know, God uh, wants to move mightily and powerfully in our lives. It also happens to be that this is a, a, year, a month of the year where we traditionally, and again, traditionally, it's only three years. So if you would consider a two-, three-year thing a tradition, then there you have it. Uh, we, every October, take time out to reassess and reevaluate why we're here as a church, why in the world did my wife and I decide it was time and the Lord called us to start a new church in the middle of Pasadena. I mean, if you have churches every 50 yards around here, why would you need another one? And so I think that's a legitimate question. And we want to actually begin today with a, a real broad look at why we're named what we're named and what's in the name of our church prism and the relationship it has to Ruth is that in Ruth we see the outworking of a similar mission, the mission of God to reach people and regardless of where they're from, enable them to be a part of God's kingdom work. Uh, prism initially was a, a, f- a phrase that I was using to describe a regional area. Uh, the first six, seven months I was here in Los Angeles, I did, in another context, some cultural analysis. Carolyn and I, at the time, were living right on the border of East Pasadena in Arcadia. And so when I looked at a map, I was really straddling the borders there of uh, Pasadena, Arcadia, and Sierra Madre. I mean, we were right there at that corner of the world, if you know which one I'm talking about. And when I wrote Pasadena, Arcadia, and Sierra Madre on a piece of paper, I just stared at it for a while, and I realized, you know, if you take the P from Pasadena and the R and the I out of Arcadia and the S and M out of Sierra Madre, you you get prism. And and honest to the Lord, that's as simple as it was for me. I was like, wow, that's prism. Now, I have to be honest with you. I'm not as bright as my letters behind my name might tell you, and so I just want you to know that I didn't know what a prism really was. Um, I'm an English journalism guy, science. Yeah, that's other people with brains. I said I, so I had to go and look up what a prism was. And so, you know, you've seen the pictures before. This is what a prism is. It, it, light comes into it and then it refracts and then out of this comes the colors of the spectrum. And I thought, wow, what a metaphor for the church. That the light of God, Jesus is the light of the world, the light to the Gentiles, 
it comes and it goes through something and then it reaches this broad spectrum of people. I mean, I stared at this thing and I said, this is too good to be true. You know what I mean? Uh, this is working out way too simplistically. Then I searched and the domain name prismchurch.com was available and I thought, well, this is a sign from God. You know, I mean, because you know how hard domain names are to come by. And so this is, this is as complex as it got for me at the time, but I really felt like I was moving us towards a concept like this, that we would be the prism and, and that there would be light come into us and then out of us we would see the light of God reach every nation, tongue, tribe. So the, the, the rainbow had the effect of communicating to me we live in a very diverse area. We should be trying and with all of our might and all of our soul to reach people for Christ in every area and every sphere of life. And it was in tandem with what God has given me in life, which is a passion to have people, primarily people who used to call themselves believers or have at one time or another been associated with a church, but their church experience or their religious experience has gone by the wayside for one reason or another. Some of them they're by their own like decisions. Some of them by their rotten encounters with the church. And say, you know, let's, let's recapture the imagination of people by showing them the grace of God, which to me is that which gives life its light. Jesus coming to rescue us and love us and care for us. So this was really at the heart of what we were trying to do from the beginning. And when we decided to call ourselves Prism Church, we realized that, you know, we can't do a thing unless light gets involved with this process. In other words, if Jesus isn't involved with a church's work, it's it's, it's not possible for it to do the things that the church is called to do. The varying things that we'll talk about throughout the course of this month. Next week, we'll will reflect on Prism's vision to renew Christians and and to revive people who uh, are believers but have been stagnant in their faith. And then we'll talk about reaching friends and what that means. And then we'll talk about renewing culture in our final week. But generically speaking, what we see is that the light comes, and once the light comes, there is a natural Reaction. There's a natural consequence to Jesus actually really being in the presence of a group of people or an individual, and that is there is a compulsion to go outward and to be thinking about other people, whether it's through service, whether it's through evangelism and reaching them and telling them about Jesus, whether it's through rescuing them, a believer who has wandered from the faith. There is something that is real, something that is a byproduct of a genuine experience with the light of God, Jesus, that causes us to want to reach others. When we look at the life of Ruth, it's a pretty remarkable story. The book of Ruth is named after one of its, it's, it's, one of its main characters or other uh, actors in that drama, uh, a young woman who is from Moab. And she was, she and another young woman had married into this family that came from Bethlehem. They had gone because of a famine to live in the land of Moab. So this Naomi and her husband and her two sons had gone, and their two boys had kind of met these two young Moabite women and fallen in love, and then the, the men of the family all died. And so the women are now thinking, what do we do? They didn't have jobs. They didn't have men at that season of life that were caring for Naomi for sure. 
And so Naomi, not wanting to drag her two daughters-in-law with her, says, you know, you guys can go back to your country. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You guys are free. You don't have to worry about taking care of me. I'll, I'll take care of myself. One of her daughters-in-law takes her up on the offer, but where we picked up our text today, Ruth is pleading, oh, please don't separate from me. She had found a connection, a familial connection, a desire to be a part of the family and the extended family of her mother-in-law, Naomi, in spite of the fact that her husband and her father-in-law were now dead. The only other book in the Bible that ever bears a woman's name is Esther. And uh, I say that because uh, we celebrate the, the strength and the power and the women of our church and also the women uh, of the scriptures. And in this particular case, Ruth, her, her faith is expressed in her desire to be a part of God's people. It's well, it's, it's demonstrated in her willingness to take the steps of faith necessary to bring restoration and healing to her family. We look at her heroics today because they're heroics that are associated with her own desire to love and care for her mother-in-law. That is why we exalt Ruth. We say this is a woman who genuinely loved somebody and loved somebody like we would hope God would love us. In the book of Ruth, this is an expression of, of great emotional and familial joy and love. The book itself, uh, we're not certain who wrote it. Jewish tradition points to Samuel. It's clearly the author uh, wasn't in the book because of the mention of David at the end of the book, which was many, many, you know, ge- at least three generations later. So we know that sometime during this, during the, when the kings ruled Israel, that this book was written to honor Ruth and Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. And so there is some speculation, too, that because of uh, David's mention in it, and David was the, the king after, Samuel, uh, after Saul, that David might have actually commissioned this work for the purposes of honoring his grandmother. Now, Ruth herself was a Moabitess. And, and so there, as a foreigner, as somebody who was being brought into this world, Uh, The first thing I want to share with you this morning is that through Ruth, we see the gospel's reach. All right, and when I talk about our vision as a church, we're a small church, we're a young church, but we believe God's moving us to, to help and encourage a bunch of Christians to see themselves as those, uh, as missionaries in the world in which we live. And so Ruth herself is a Moabite. She has been, if you will, evangelized. They have gone and God in his providence has has gone outside the people of Israel and said, we're going to reach people and we're going to bring them in. And and she shows that the gospel isn't just for the people of God. It's really something we're supposed to be about reaching the people who are not the people of God. We're supposed to be extending the grace of God far beyond our borders. You see in verse 15, again, where we picked up our our summary of Ruth, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Now, John MacArthur says that this is the moment really of Ruth's conversion 
because in fact we see the fruit of the evidence of somebody who's come into relationship with God. She's saying, your God will be my God, your people will be my people, and these are two fruits of somebody saying, I'm really a believer, I'm genuinely a believer. Two things result from that. Uh, One is that you say, I'm going to worship the one true God, and I am going to develop connections. I'm going to develop real relationships with others who are a part of that family of God. You see this in Ruth's life. As a citizen of Moab, now the, the interesting part about her conversion is that the city of Moab was, or the country of Moab, was not just, uh, just a, a, any old country. It was a country that was in, had long been an enemy of Israel's. Uh, they were also a country that lived under a curse. It was a land east of Israel across the Dead Sea in a barren desert area. It was cursed by God. And uh, as a Moabitess, Ruth would have been under this curse. Uh, Ruth as well uh, was part of this nation that was hostile to God. They actually formed, it's sad, their beginnings are tragic. The nation of Moab was formed when Lot, remember the, the nephew of, uh, the brother of Abraham, I'm sorry, who he had a child. And this child was named Moab. And that child, Moab, was born to Lot through an incestuous relationship that Lot had with his oldest daughter which is horrible. So their nation from its inception was horrible. And then for many years, Moab oppressed Israel during the period of the judges. We also know that, the, that when the Moabites had eventually made peace uh, with uh, the nation of Israel, the Moabites went on to become uh, child sacrificers, which you can read about in uh, 1 Kings chapter 11 and 2 Kings chapter 3, a brutal people. And it's because they rejected the true God, because of their idolatry, because of their child sacrifice, that their nation sat under this curse. And so when we talk about, oh yeah, of course they would let Ruth in, this would be the equivalent of whatever country of origin you come from, pick your sworn enemy and then say, okay, somebody from that family, from that sworn enemy country is going to come and become your relative. This was a dicey situation. What happened in the narrative of Ruth was that she then, if she was going to be part of this lineage that was Naomi and whatnot, Naomi, her mother-in-law, kind of had to find somebody who would marry her. And so they found someone who was what was called a kinsman redeemer. And this was somebody within their family who would come and would take on the responsibility by purchasing the land, by purchasing the different things that were a part of their family. They would take on the responsibility of caring for Naomi, take on the responsibility of caring for the wife of the deceased. And they would eventually find this man. And it's one of the great stories in the Bible is that Ruth, who is an outsider, is brought in and cared for the nation of Israel, not just by Naomi, but by relatives of Naomi. That they loved her, that they reached out to her, that they pulled her in and made her part of their world. As prisms receive light and then go on to produce every color, our desire is for the gospel to have a comprehensive reach, both outside our church outside whatever our cultural comfort levels are, outside of our country. Our plan is that we would be a church that was actively involved in church planting. We would hope to be really radical in our giving to mercy missions to others. 
All of these things are things we hope for, but we won't see if we don't pray and seek the Lord and have his light come and power through a church that would be called prism to do all this. It's all dependent on the power and the light and the grace of God. But this compulsion to go beyond us is as early as the book of Acts. When Jesus told the apostles in Acts 1, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so as early as the Christian church functioned, they knew that they needed the Holy Spirit's power to come through them. But when that Holy Spirit's power actually did come through them, it would then lead to people saying, I'm going to reach out. I'm going beyond myself. Every tongue, every color, every kind of person, every type of person in my influence, I'm going to, by God's grace, reach them. I love in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, when the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So as a group of believers sitting in this prism church, we don't sit there passively, we sit there actively saying, spirit of the living God, power of God, the light of the gospel, by your grace and by your kindness, would you shine through us Would you work through us? We pray for people. We pray that you would use us to reach them. And and I know it's difficult for some to conceive that you could have a small band of people pull together and say, let's be a church that actually makes a difference. Let's make a church that actually sees people come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Let's be a church that actually, when it gets money, gives most of it away. Let's be a church that cares for people and does what it can. We're a teeny little church, and yet we're going to do this Broken Chains event for Oasis. $5,000 is probably nothing to them, but it's what we think we can do. And so we're going to ride bikes around Pasadena, and for the next three weeks, I'm going to put on my Facebook site, please support me, X number of dollars per kilometer. We do this not because it's what the church should do, but because the Holy Spirit's working in our midst and we're saying we are compelled to give out. We must give out. And you and I, if we'll allow ourselves to be that prism, the light will come through us and we'll begin to see the power of God do some amazing things. In spite of your past associations or actions, what we see in Ruth's life is once you're brought into the family of God, it doesn't matter who you were affiliated with before. It doesn't matter what you've done before. It doesn't matter what curse you think you're sitting under. You have been redeemed. You have been made okay with the Father. And this is what we see in Ruth, the the reach of the gospel that reaches anybody and anyone in any place. I write a blog. I didn't know if you knew that. Uh, I send out an email. Uh, the traffic on the blog would indicate you don't or that it's just so bad that you don't want to read it. One of the two. Uh, and you know what? Hey, I can deal with that pain. Uh, at www.chuckreyer.com, I post uh, semi-regularly uh, my musings on the world of ministry and life and anything else that I think of or feel. And uh, one of the things I will often ask myself is, is anybody really reading this thing? And uh, to my joy, 
Uh, two weeks ago, I got a, a response to uh, my blog, and it, this is what the response said. And it was a, it was a real shock to my system. It said, Chuck, you brought me to Christ at Westchester Carlisle Hall back in October 1984, and I was saved. That was the beginning of my walk, and I continue even today. I just wanted to let you know that I don't know where I'd be without Christ in my life, and I have you to thank for it. He amazes me. I'm glad that you continue to lead others to him. Blessings to you, your ministry, and your family, Sharon McCoy. I had not heard from this woman for 30 years. I mean, honestly, uh, we were friends in college, but then she, I'm, you know, she moved on after grad school, and I, and I hadn't seen Sharon but this was the woman I was telling you about before. This is the woman who was the first person I'd ever prayed to receive Christ with on the dorm floor. And I don't say that to brag. I say that to give you hope. God will use anybody. I mean, if he uses me, please, isn't this the most obvious example in our church? Isn't this why God has me up in front of you? It's not to impress you with my wonderfulness or my giftedness, but to say, if God can use this guy to reach people for Christ, he most certainly can use me. I don't know what your checkered past is, but trust me, it's maybe not as checkered as mine. And, and I can assure you that I don't know who you were associated with that you're ashamed of, but I'm pretty sure that I have some savory characters, and I was a savory character. It doesn't matter. You say, I'm not gifted. Well, you know, I'm not that gifted, frankly. I mean, you know, the, if I was, like, uber-gifted, uh, I'd, I'd be writing books and doing all kinds of things. I'm just your average Joe. You and I together, though, because of the light coming through us, can make a difference. You may feel like nothing more than a prism, but that's great because this is the way God made you. He made you to be a pass-through, a means by which you would be able to reach others. And through, reach, and through Ruth, we see the gospel's reach. Second thing I'll share with you this morning is this. Through Ruth, we see the gospel's redeemer. Now, when we spoke of the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer is what specifically they're speaking of here. This was the system whereby they had somebody within their family who would be able to purchase the land that their, that their family had owned and then virtually take on the responsibility that came with purchasing that land. So Naomi comes home. They had some ancestral land, some territory. And so what, when that gets purchased, they take on the responsibility of caring for everyone in the family. So when they eventually get this guy, uh, Boaz, who's interested in caring for Naomi and in caring certainly in taking on the responsibility of the wife, um, it's a great thing. It's a miraculous thing, but it's referred to as a redeemer, somebody who purchases the responsibility of caring for them. In this episode, we'll read from verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth... Now, Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, and she became his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than the seven sons, has given birth to him." When Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood came and gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, those, that last verse, and the reason I had Karen read the genealogy portion, because every now and again, I know if you're like me, especially if you've tried to read the Bible like in a year, 
when you get to the genealogies, you think to yourself, oh, boy. You know, or you go, skip that one. Or you do the academic skim thing. You just kind of read over the genealogy. Yes, read the genealogy, check it off, daily reading thing done or whatever. You know, sometimes it's really difficult to get into the genealogies. But there is a purpose for that, which we will get to. Um, In the story of Ruth, this is a, a book that sheds light on the on the history, really, of the concept of redemption. Uh, Redemption is the key concept found in Ruth. The Hebrew word for it occurs in various forms in the book 23 times. So you know it's important. It's primarily a story about Naomi's transformation from despair to happiness through selfless, God-blessed acts, both Ruth and Boaz, particularly in the light of the curse that those relatives had been sitting under in Moab, Uh, she, both Naomi and Ruth, they moved from emptiness to fullness, from destitution to security and hope. The same way at this stage of Israel's life, they were under constant barrage, and now during the time of the kings when this book was written, they had experienced this time of peace. And so this book reflects on what should be the characteristics of our gospel which is that you and I are in a place of despair and in need of God and in need of peace. And Jesus, our Redeemer, comes along and he actually purchases this for us so that you and I can sit and rest in the presence of God. We can be, as Ruth was, cared for, loved, transformed. And and I think we see... uh, uh, the Redeemer, our Redeemer, Jesus, and a couple of other things associated with this story. One is the, the attachment to the city of Bethlehem. For those of you who aren't particularly versed in the Bible, you, you have to at some level remember that, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And, and it had been told uh, by the prophet Micah that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah. And God made sure that that prophecy was fulfilled in the life of Jesus even though his mom, Mary, was from Nazareth, her, her birth family, was, she'd moved to Nazareth, her birth family was from Bethlehem and through the decree that was issued, remember Christmas time? And then they all have to go back home and that's why they ended up back in Bethlehem so he could, Jesus could fulfill the prophecy and be born in Bethlehem. You see this Bethlehem narrative because Naomi's family was from there and then eventually she had uh, relatives not the least of which was her grandson, which would be the second king of Israel, David. All right, now the importance of that is is that it was always contended that, and it was prophesied, that the Messiah would be from David's lineage. He would be a relative. So in in, in the, the art for this family tree, if you will, is very simply, Ruth marries Boaz, they have Obed, Obed has Jesse, Jesse has David, and then David, if you'll look through the genealogies in Matthew 1, you see that eventually Jesus is part of that lineage. You could also look at it in in the book of Luke and see from Mary's side that she too was uh, linked to King David. And you might be saying, well, why is that really important? Is it just like, is there some magic in the city of Bethlehem? No, it's to demonstrate the beauty of the gospel and redemption. I mean, think about it. Um, if you read Matthew 1, you're going through this genealogy, you come to verse 5, you see Ruth, a, a, a foreigner, 
Someone who had to be redeemed is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. How did a cursed Moabite get into the line of the Messiah? The answer is because God provided a redeemer. And Boaz, her husband, is a picture of our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus, who bought us for himself out of the curse, out of our destitution, and he made us his own beloved bride and blesses us for all generations. This is one of the great stories, not only of the care and concern of people outside of the family of God and the command of God that we should be concerned about others, but it's also this marvelous story because it paints the picture of the relationship we're supposed to be having with God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, this is what it says about our Redeemer. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, we read the Bible knowing that Jesus has risen from the dead, knowing that Jesus is the light of the world through whom all things were made according to John chapter 1. And we know that it was the plan of God to bring all things under Him. And that means that many of the metaphors and many of the foreshadowings from the Old Testament are mere pictures of what Jesus has done for us. And where this helps you and I to look at the life of Ruth is to say, I am outside of the family of God. I am wonderfully brought into the family of God, blessed and adored and cared for and redeemed. And my life is now on a new trajectory. I'm part of the the plan of God. Through our association with Jesus, our Redeemer, we experience the security and the love that was promised to and given to Ruth. We see the gospel of our communion with Jesus in the story of Ruth's heroic love for God. You and I, if you've ever felt as if you just didn't measure up, that you weren't deserving of God's love and grace, understand, neither was Ruth. She was graciously extended people into her life who cared for her and loved her. And yes, by the Holy Spirit's power, she said, I have to be a part of this family of people. And God provided along the way, ultimately, someone who would pay the price to secure her belonging into this family. Do you hear all these connections? Do you see the gospel's greatness and how through Ruth we see the gospel's redeemer? This is sort of our hope. It's more than sort of our hope. It is our hope as we worship every Sunday. We come to worship God, but we come to see Him. And the metaphor of the communion table is our Redeemer's love for us. It is the picture of someone who was willing to pay the price to bring us into His family, to redeem us so that we could be secure and know that our future is his. It's not by our good works, it's because of his kindness. And it is the opportunity for us to realize that by his grace, we've been invited into his presence to have a meal with Jesus. But in that presence is where we go, okay, I realize how much you love me. Now, I 
I'm committing myself to loving you in return. We love because he first loved us. Ruth was heroic because God first loved her. And so today, as you come to the table, regardless of how you've been doing lately, spiritually speaking, God's calling you to say, come humbly to me and receive the grace and kindness that has been provided for you in your Redeemer. If you're his child, you're you're welcome to join us at the table. It's free to anyone who would humbly say, I need Christ as my Redeemer, the one who would make me worthy in his sight by his grace and kindness alone. So let's pray to that end that we'd be encouraged today, okay? Father, thank you for Ruth. Thank you for not only the word of God that gives us the truth about uh, all that uh, you did and she...